Uh, welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians uh, Podcast. And uh, today, our guest is Dr. Miriam Al-Khouri uh, Malham. And today's discussion will be related to uh, work-life balance and uh, relief of stress at work and how to promote happiness at work and in life in general. Dr. Al-Khouri uh, Malham is an assistant professor of psychology at the Department of Social and Education Sciences in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at the Lebanese American University. And I love the university because I used to work there previously. Uh, her research interests include biopsychosocial basis of stress, trauma, and anxiety disorders. And more recently, she has received a major NIH grant uh, with her team to implement practices promoting emotional intelligence, stress management, and growth mindset with vulnerable adolescents in public schools in Lebanon. She has also worked with medical residents and physicians in terms of implementing practices related to work-life balance and decreasing stress at work. Uh, welcome, Dr. Al-Khouri Maham, to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Khalil. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course, 100%. And it, it's, it's so nice to be discussing promotion of work-life balance and happiness, especially in these days now when uh, what's happening around the world and uh, next to Lebanon. So basically, I mean, just in the past, like people used to, everybody used to go work their land and, and do stuff like that. And then the Industrial Revolution came and suddenly work became a very big part of life and like a very big part of what defines an individual. Uh, but how can we discuss a bit the evolution of society with how work and promotion became a very important aspect over time? Uh, and I think you're right, starting off saying that it's becoming more of a global problem. So we used to, you know, farm our own lands in the separate parts of the world and do things very differently. And it seems that we're tending to do things more commonly altogether. So it's a nice way of, you know, reflecting from different parts of the world what's the best fix for this problem we all have. Right. Uh, right. Let me give two quick maybe answers. Of course, there are many factors at, at play here. Uh, but, you know, from a, if, if we want to look at the social uh, perspective, we would say that we are glamorizing, you know, this, uh, this social status has become associated with being busy and with, you know, working, overworking. But from a psychological perspective, this has also come with the automaticity that we hear ever since we are very young related to what do you want to become when you grow up? We don't ask kids, what do you want to work in? We, we tell them, you know, what do you want to become? And so our work becomes an integral part of our identity. And so to promote ourselves and to promote our success means we inherently look into doing this within uh, our work as well. Right. And, 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 in, in relation to that, too, I feel like some parents try to push their kids also towards going into specialties that will give them like a social status or or more money or whatever. And, and what are your thoughts about that? And we have some friends who do that with their kids. They're like, oh, I'm interested in, let's say, uh, music. No, you should be a doctor. And uh, so what do you think of that? Yeah, so there is, you know, the the financial security uh, or the economic stability or prosperity has been intricately linked to specific uh, types of jobs. And these are precisely the jobs where we have, as you have introduced the industrial revolution, the idea or the framework was, you know, if you push the machine to give more, the outcome, the productivity will be increased. And so we know that within those disciplines, the more you input, the more time you spend, then of course the outcome would be better. However, we forgot that we're not exactly as machines and we need to rest. So this wasn't factored in. 
And I think we talk, we'll talk about this and touch upon this. But the thing is, socially, most parents, this comes from a nice place, I'm going to say, because we want our kids to be successful and to have stability and, you know, social statuses, as you mentioned as well. Uh, so we're biasing the kids to think that these are, um, and, and perhaps, you know, I'm taking a wild guess, that the best uh, people in the entertainment industry, they might be making much more than, you know, the best out there in the medical industry, just as a head-to-head -head comparison. But still, the parents, they're they're looking into more classical, traditional ways of pushing the kids forward. Right, I but I think social media now is also disturbing these uh, norms that we have. So that that's another <laughs> game changer as well. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's big, things are changing pretty quickly. I think so. Basically, yes, as as you said, like people started saying, "All right, you work more, you produce more, you work more, you produce more." But then suddenly, things started coming out that people are getting burned out. Actually, maybe you work more, you your productivity goes down. So what are some of the side effects of like overwork and and uh, and not being able to live your life adequately, let's say with your family because you're just overworking? Absolutely. So the idea is, you know, for for some time this has worked. Work, I I mean, uh, spending more hours within the work setting has given rise to more productivity. However, this has plateaued, and as you said, it has backfired. So the more uh, burned out you are. If we are talking from a work-life perspective, and you know, we, we we'll make sure to precisely define this in a bit. Your work is less productive, less efficient, less creative, but your personal life is also less satisfied, more exhausted, more detached, more cynical. So you're actually damaging both aspects of the work-life balance when you start to overwork. Uh, so again. We need to incentivize people not to be lazy to work. But at the same time, this, this should not come at the price of resting and spending enough time refueling. Right, exactly. And so, so this brings us to the definition. So what's the definition of, of work-life balance? Uh, I mean, we always talk about it, but what, what is the exact definition of it? You see, this is exactly one of the tricky questions when we talk about work-life balance. We all have an understanding of what that is. But, you know, because we want this approach to be very scientific, we don't really have metrics to evaluate what a good work-life balance looks like as opposed to a less good one. We don't really have standardized ways of measuring this because it's different across disciplines. It's different across life stages. It's different for individuals, for example, who have to care for people who themselves struggle with medical or mental disorder, or who have to care for someone with mental or medical disorder. The other tricky part is that to make it easier for our brains to understand, we go for the dichotomic thinking that relates illness is opposed to wellness, as if, you know, it's either you're this or that. And it's not really the case because, you know, in spite of illness, you can find your well-being. And in spite of workload and stress and trauma, you can find well-being. And so the ideal definition is, you know, I, I've read this somewhere, that the perfect work-life balance is if you don't work <laughs> and you enjoy life. But this is not very viable. Right. So the best the approach we can suggest is for you to feel satisfied and to retrieve meaning from both aspects of your life. We need to remember 
that you're the same person with like this dual identity of breadwinner and caregiver. So the more you find common values, the more you find common meaning, both in your workplace and in your personal life, then the better you seem to be off. And this is a dynamic concept. So this is the, the, the problem, but also the silver lining is that if you're not well today in this work-life balance, you can improve that. There are ways, and we'll talk about those. You can improve this. But obviously, the tricky part is that once you found this golden standard, it's a dynamic thing that you need to keep investing energy to, uh, to keep there. Right. So it's a, partially, it's like probably overwork uh, leading to destruction or, or not as good of a family life afterwards. But the other part, which we're going to discuss here, is, is how do you achieve this uh, happiness and work-life balance because because I think uh, and, what, and what's important is some people like you they go to work they're like have this negative negative attitude they're like oh this my job is horrible but then they stay in it and every day they wake up in the morning I don't want to go to my job it's horrible so how do you get this positive attitude because your research has been on this topic before how do you keep yourself positive to be able to promote a good work-life balance and a good life uh, that's an absolutely important question and I just want to highlight one thing um, of course, the, you know, the, the point of this conversation and this discussion is to highlight the shortcomings so that you can ideally improve them. But, you know, there's also so work life balance can also work, as you said, positively. So when you get a promotion, you come back home and you're super excited. And this also, you know, spills over positively on your loved ones um, when your paper finally gets published or you name it. So sometimes, you know, work also provides positive outcomes in your personal life. But of course, we're focusing on, you know, when this system is broken, what are the things that you can do to improve them? Just a second quick highlight before we talk about what are the actual things that you can do. You know, very briefly, because I have a background in neuroscience, so I feel like this needs to infiltrate in all my conversations. Our brain mostly includes their different ways of viewing it, but like uh, an emotional advisor and then a rational one. And then when they work together harmoniously, this is when we make the best outcome or this is when we have the best outcomes. Our decision making processes seem to be optimized. So if we want to segregate too much work and life as if, you know, one is the rational, the other one is the emotional part, it works less well. So ideally, we need to like favor both. So, of course, there's a bit of predominance of rational versus emotional at work, but it's also important to create a positive environment and the same thing in our personal lives as well. Now, having said this, our brains are sometimes biased by evolution, most of the times, actually, to focus on the negative because, you know, this is a threat detection that, is gonna, that was going to allow us throughout our history as, as human to detect threat and then monopolize resources to address it. So most of the time, we tend to focus on the negative, again, aspects of work, which is very important, but you also need to look at the positive aspects. And the best way to, to do this, more or less, is to lay down what would an ideal day look like for you, and then identify where are the areas that you can improve. And we call this the clock day. So, you know, ideally, you would want to wake up, have the time to sip your coffee before you rush to work. And so maybe this is something that you have the chance to do. And so it's important to realistically, you know, we agreed, Khalil, that, you know, your perfect day might be looking differently than mine. And right. so it's important to do this heads up. 
Now, practically what you can do, you know, the golden rule is to reverse the formula whereby we think that when we're done with work, this is when we'll, have, we'll be happy because ideally work will never be done. You know, what, not, not in your personal life, not in your home and not at your professional careers as well. So we need to, and because time is finite, we need to focus on energy that is renewable. So two things here. There are things you can do in your professional aspect to improve your work, uh, uh, work-life work balance. And this is setting boundary. So clearly communicating with your teammates, with your boss, what works for you within the norms of, of course, the rules and regulations where you work. It's important to find ways to delegate tasks and to negotiate more time on certain tasks. Most people complain, actually, you know, that they're, they're constantly under time pressure. And so perhaps when we negotiate more flexible timing, and this is something that we've started to do during COVID, and it has, again, backfired because we haven't done that properly, perhaps. Communicating more, negotiating more time is one thing. So with the employer. And then on a personal level, it's important also to focus on regular self-care, on daily positive refueling uh, activities with lots of evidence-based techniques that are very easy, that are not time-consuming, like gratitude, like journaling, like mindfulness, and definitely not jeopardize your sleep pattern. You know, but I'm not the person to say that because sometimes as parents, this is difficult. And this is exactly what, you know, we preach and don't practice. So (laughs) there's area for improvement for everyone. So basically what you're talking about is things that like, you wake up in the morning, you're like grateful or mindfulness, like doing yoga, let's say, stuff like that, or exercising, right? Exercise is probably one of the things that would lead to this. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, you people frequently compare, complain, let's say, of having many emails to address in the morning. So if you feel like this is not the ideal time to answer heads up your 40 emails, say you're going to segment them. So there's 20 emails. And then have a break, have a chat with your colleague, refuel your energy, and then address the other 20. So it's not just about time management in your day. It's also about energy management. And it's also about, you know, when you segment, so you're working, you get tired, you start scrolling into your social media feeds just to get distracted. So what you're basically doing is that, you know, the work gets segmented, so it doesn't get done, done properly. And your leisure time gets segmented because social media here, instead of being your refueling resource, is consuming your energy. So ideally, if you're playing with your kids and you're checking your emails, it's the same thing. So work permeates your personal life and, you know, personal life permeates the work. So the best way is to segment them, to say for the coming 40 minutes, I'm going to be doing this and then I'm going to have 20 minutes break so I can enjoy this first segment and I can enjoy this other second segment. So these are tricks as well that can help smoothly navigate your day. And I'm sure, I mean, I've seen, I've looked at your research and uh, and obviously congratulations on your NIH grant too, but you've worked on uh, the psychosocial basis of like stress, trauma, and anxiety. And I'm sure you've dealt with a lot of people who have been subjected to trauma from like different things uh, that could have happened. And I, I guess, and also you work in Lebanon. I mean, some some big traumatic events have happened before. So how do you deal with, with people who have had trauma to have a positive attitude and, and move forward? 
there are many, many, many different ways of fostering these positive attitudes. There is no one size fits all. So some of the features or factors work better for one person than the other or for one discipline than the other. What we've seen across the board is that when you stay inactive, so when you feel like you're helpless, whenever you're faced with trauma, and also when you are insecure about your job, this is where, you know, the trauma worsens your mental well-being overall. And so there's a French saying, le travail c'est la santé. I don't know exactly what that sounds like in, in English, but the idea is that we've tracked, for example, frontliners during the COVID. So the healthcare providers who were at the forefront of this massive COVID infection, if we remember in 2020, when it was still super deadly, and we compared them, you know, to students who had the same age. So as compared to residents, the students had the same age, but they were supposedly safe at home. And we found out, ironically, that those who were supposedly feeling safe and had more time to know, you know, to connect or uh, uh, spend time, you know, watching Netflix or socializing online or, you know, meditating or they had higher levels of burnout as opposed to those frontliners. And you remember at the time they had to change their lifestyle. They were afraid of contaminating their loved ones. So they had to change the housings. And so even those who were directly faced with the vital threat, they had lower levels of burnout, although they were working more. And, you know, this was like an unprecedented viral uh, pandemic, but they had lesser levels of burnout because they felt that they were contributing somehow to containing the, the virus. Um, and so, again, surprisingly, they had lower levels of burnout. So the idea is when you feel that you're actively contributing uh, to diminishing or containing any traumatic consequence, same thing applies post-Beirut blast, same thing post-economic uh, stability. But of course, so activity is one thing, and then job security is the other one. So we're not denying that it's extremely important for our psychological safety to have jobs. And so, you know, when you're not working, those who are insecure about their jobs, those who are unemployed, they have higher levels of mental distress. And so this is important to keep in mind. And as you started saying, this is why the balance is important. It's not one or the other. So if you don't have work or if you don't have a life, in either case, you're going to end up being less happy at the end of the day. So it's important to keep those aspects in mind and try to regulate how much energy and to prioritize the tasks that are relevant for you at work, but also, you know, to prioritize rest and self-care in your personal life as well. Exactly. And this brings me to your NIH grant, which actually you're trying to implement practices to promote emotional intelligence and stress management in adolescents in public schools in Lebanon. And, and this is a big issue. I mean, emotional intelligence probably is related also to having a secure job and maybe a secure work-life balance afterwards. So can you tell us a bit about your grant and what you're doing in the public schools and also then discuss what is emotional intelligence? Absolutely. So the idea of the grant is to target vulnerable uh, age groups, which is typically adolescent, but also to try to find like a sustainable formula. So, you know, we come to this world unequipped with, so our brain doesn't know how to navigate the world. And then we start learning these things. Uh, we learn how to speak, how to write, how to walk, but we don't learn a very important aspect of our life, which is how to regulate and to manage our emotions. So we can't really say that we are doing poorly globally uh, or we are doing poorly globally on a mental health scale because we have not yet learned the tools 
to properly regulate emotions and to properly regulate stress. And so dealing with stress, you know, stress can become a very important source of energy if you know how to regulate it properly. So what we're doing in those schools is we have 11 standardized sessions of emotional intelligence training. And the idea here, again, is to, you know, usually in schools, we teach kids how to use the rational part of their brain, but we teach them less how to make use of the best of their emotional brains. And so in emotional regulation, we teach them to identify emotions uh, to either in themselves and in others, and also to uh, regulate, so to name, to label, to identify, and to regulate emotions, to foster more positive communications, even on topics that are very taboo. And ideally, also in schools, we're trying to address the concept of bullying, which I know is also one of those global important topics uh, that can have very negative repercussions on mental health. And so we teach those young kids self-help tools, including things like gratitude. And so our studies show that people who practice gratitude, and this can be, you know, very saying very few things that you're grateful for. Again, we've mentioned earlier that even in times of illness, so even those with medical chronic disorders can find ways to improve their well-being. And even those who struggle with, medical, with mental disorders can find ways to improve their quality of life with this very simple trick. So gratitude is one. Sleep improvement is a definite important aspect. Exercise, so physical exercise. Improving nutrition is also important. Spirituality seems to also improve overall mental health. And there is an increased interest in how spirituality brings meaning at work. So we're, we're talking about spirituality at work and spirituality in your personal life. Uh, and so these are additional aspects as well. And the overall framework is that when you're faced with a trauma, it either breaks you or it helps you grow. And so all these tools that we are trying to teach the kids uh, and that we're reminding everyone at the same time about are very e easily acceptable tools, but they're evidence-based. So there's a lot of science behind them and they seem to improve your capacity to grow after a trauma. And we know that trauma is inherent to human beings. So we are all going to be faced at one point or another with direct or indirect sources of trauma. And so we're hoping this, you know, will contribute to improve the education so that people reach work stages equipped with ways to properly balance their work and their lives. Right. And I think that that's very important because when you look, let's say, we probably we were all like in high school or at school and you see some of the kids who were rank one at your school and you say oh my god they used to get such such good grades they're not doing as well let's say as kids who were less ranked and i always attribute that i don't know if you agree with me but i always attribute that to emotional intelligence because basically people who have more emotional intelligence tend to be more successful than people who are maybe more intelligent in school but not emotionally intelligent as, as much Yes. So you have the book smart and the street smart kind of, right. uh, um, and they can go hand in hand. So we want to, we want to remind everyone as well that, uh, you know, IQ seems to contribute to 20% of our, of, of our overall success, no matter how you define success. Um, and then EQ, which is like the street smart kind of thing contributes 80%. So, you know, both are important, but we've been focusing perhaps our energy on the lesser important of the two. Right, and things are changing now. There's a lot of books being written on EQ rather than on Absolutely. this point. And uh, so basically, what impacts productivity at work? I know we've discussed a lot of them right now, but I don't know if you've studied that or... So what what is 
what are the what are the factors that impact productivity for people at work? All right. The, the first thing is not finding meaning. So when you don't have motivation to keep going, your productivity, your overall productivity decreases. When the demands of the workplace outweigh the resources you have, so whether uh, in terms of time, in terms of mental capacity, you know, there's the concept of a mental load. So it's not just the task that you're doing. It's also the intensity. If you have a surgery that's going to be different from a client interview, both are extremely important, but then the mental resources that you need for one is not exactly for the, for the same as for the other. Also, you know, this concept of multitasking with divided attention, which is a big myth because it's impossible for people to, you know, we promoted the fact that we're good at multitasking, but this divided attention actually ends up depleting our energy. So this also decreases overall energy when you have to do multiple things, you know, like in academia, teach and do research and services and supervise students. And if you're a medical doctor, it's all the same, you know, supervise interns, residents, uh, do surgeries, interviews, fill papers, administrative work. So all of this is a bit is is one too many tasks for you to do. Uh, and so this over, this ends up also decreasing your productivity. And when you feel that you are not heard by uh, upper admin, so when you feel that your employer is not really focusing or responding to your needs, this ends up decreasing productivity. And so let me say this again. We know that a happy brain performs better than a neutral or an unhappy brain. So again, we need to reverse this formula because we become productive once we are happy and motivated and satisfied and feel heard and, you know, do not overwork. It's not the other way around. So it's not when you reach a certain promotion that you become happier. It's the other way around. And so, you know, excessive emails, excessive load of tasks, excessive admin duties, these are the things that end up depleting your resources, uh, depleting your rational cognitive resources. And so overall, they end up diminishing your productivity. And there's a thin red line. If you cross it, if you fall into the trap of burnout, then unfortunately, much like other medical disorders, you know, once you have them, those chronic things like, for example, diabetes, let's say, you only manage symptoms and you no longer are able, at least in 2023, and I'm hoping this will change in the coming few years, you're not able to go back. So once you fall into burnout, you know, this can escalate very rapidly into unfortunately suicidality. And I know that the medical discipline very similarly to other, you know, high performing discipline struggles. And I'm happy to know that, you know, at the moment we're having this conversation to make uh, the life, the livelihood and the quality of life of these healthcare providers, you know, more bearable and even more enjoyable. Right. I agree. Burnout is a big topic in, in medicine uh, at this point. And I'm sure it's in, in, in other in other fields uh, as well. So, uh, yeah, so we discussed it. So, so I guess to avoid burnout, you need to have good work-life balance and you need to have the happy brain component to it and decrease your workload. So basically, uh, so I look at that recently, there's been some news about like some of the Scandinavian countries, such as I think Norway and Finland. I forgot if it's Norway or Sweden, but they were decreasing the number of days that people go to work and where they were assessing whether this will lead to higher productivity or not. So what do you think of these techniques that were done in these countries? 
So the preliminary results that we have seems to be promising, quite promising. This is also something that we started investigating with the whole hype around hybrid work, remote work that was accelerated by uh, the COVID, the recent COVID pandemic. Right. You know, flexibility and hybrid work are very important. But as you've mentioned at the beginning, this is just to properly close the loop, is that we always need to be mindful and careful not to overdo it. Because there was a recent report by Microsoft, and they looked at how many times do we use our keyboards. And this is an indirect reflection of productivity, you know, because you're working typically and not just watching something on your on your desktop or on your screens. And so there was typically that we had two peaks during a day. So at like eight to 10 and then like two to three, these are the highest uh, productivity uh, times. And now we're starting to see a third peak after dinner. So that's around, you know, nine to 10 p.m. And so, you know, this flexible thing allows you to commute back to your family, to your loved ones, to spend quality time with them. But it seems that, you know, because you have this ease of access sometimes to your emails or your laptop, we are tempted to, because we want to finish the work of tomorrow, which again, we agreed is never done. Um, we have this tendency to overwork again. So we're, we're generating again this trap that we fell into with the industrial revolution. So I think the way out is to be very mindful of how many hours you work in a day. You to be very mindful of, you know, prioritizing sleep, prioritizing healthy lifestyles, prioritizing family time, as you've mentioned, prioritizing hobbies. Uh, this, this, these are not a luxury. They're important to our functioning as human beings, to the best of our potential for the longest possible time. And let me just remind again, everyone that the, the longest study on happiness that was done not so long ago uh, at Harvard ended up finding or discussing the fact that the number one predictor of our quality of life is the quality of our relationships. So again, we want to adjust modern work to our lifestyles, to our uh, flexibly, because no two people have exactly the same patterns or the same lifestyle, but we need to be mindful to factor in the quality of our relationship to ourselves, to the spiritual realm, and to others around us as well. So, you know, it's interesting, and we should be having this conversation around what is the best way to, or what is a better way, you know, to do this thing we call work. Uh, with avoiding or with diminishing the side effects of overwork. Right, exactly. And and recently you had a conference at LAU uh, regarding uh, these topics, right? Absolutely. And so it was with the medical discipline as well. So pharmacy, nursing, uh, medical doctors, because they tend to, because these are disciplines where you are in contact with another human directly, as opposed to other disciplines as well you tend to sometimes overwork because, you know, you want to make yourself more useful. It's not just because you want to be promoted and, you know, get more papers and make more money, which are, which are all very decent and very praiseable motivations. But sometimes it's just because you want to serve better. You know, you want to improve. You want to read more about the latest treatment for something. And sometimes you end up forgetting yourself or burning yourself out, which is exactly why these kinds of, like, cues and reminders and conversations are very necessary uh, so that we remind ourselves that work is very important. There are ways to optimize work, to get more energy, to be more productive, to be more creative. And it's important to talk about these so that you don't overstep on your personal well-being. 
so I think just to summarize, I think for, for people to have a good work-life balance, not to overwork and to have a good quality of life, you need to have emotional intelligence, you need to be able to manage your time, try to be happy at work, not overwork yourself and have hobbies and relationships with other people. Now, they look easier said than done. But, you know, it's one day at a time. So everyone can choose one of the things they want to improve and perhaps work on it for the coming week and then choose another thing and improve it in the coming week. Start the discussion with the employer because sometimes there are limitations as to, you know, how much you can maneuver around that. Uh, but this is a definite call, of course, for action. Right. And I, and I think, I mean, with time, two people learn it. Like I can, I can give an example of myself, maybe yourself too. Like when you start... When you finish college and you start working, initially you're overworking because you want to prove yourself, but then suddenly you discover, you know, there's no reason to do this. I have better ways to manage my time. And over time, I think you learn how to how to manage it. Any final advice since we're in the Lebanese Physicians Podcast, I guess, any final advice for like upcoming uh, medical <laughs> trainees and medical students uh, on how to lead a better life in medicine? Other than like lead the, uh... lead the specialty. Yes, absolutely. Here's the thing in Arabic, you know, there's one that says, or in Lebanese, which is, you know, if you don't surround yourself with people, even if you go to heaven, you're going to get bored. Uh, so make sure you rely on those, you know, positive, supportive uh, people around you. And, you know, in, in Lebanon, in Oriental cultures, and I'm, and I'm hoping around the world, we are learning to reinvest in the important, uh, importance of uh, you know, peer-to-peer -peer or person-to-person -person support, which is exactly what you're doing, Khalil. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Al-Khouri Manham, for being on the podcast. Uh, I think hopefully people have people will have improved quality of lives and work-life balance after the, listening to it. A pleasure. Thank you for having me.